In his younger days, Jack Kilgore was a missionary to Argentina. But for most of his professional life, Dr. Kilgore was chairman of the philosophy department at Baylor. On the third floor of the Tidwell Bible Building, you could always track down Dr. Kilgore by following your nose. The pungent smell of smoke that billowed from his ever-present pipe gave him away. He would go into the classroom with that uh, pipe still in his teeth, but he'd pull it out, but the minute class was over, he'd go right back in, he'd fire it up, cloud of smoke falling down the hallway to his office. But in the classroom, it was obvious that his passion was Greek thought. Ancient Greek philosophy was his specialty, especially Plato and Aristotle. And like those two great minds, Dr. Kilgore was relentless in calling his students to do diligence in the pursuit of truth. He would demolish the cherished assumptions, the half-truths and appearances of truth that students would set forth in dogmatic fashion. But he always did so in a constructive way. I guess more than anything else, Jack Kilgore taught me not to be afraid of the truth. It was today's lectionary lesson from 2 Timothy that got me thinking about Dr. Kilgore and reminded me of an incident that happened when I was a young man back in the days when I listened to music on a record player. Those days during my first pastorate in the small town of Ashgrove, Missouri, population 1100. I was sitting in my study one night working on a sermon when the telephone rang. It was Jack Kilgore. I was surprised to hear his voice. The last time we had spoken was when I had called him to decline a scholarship that he had offered me to pursue a master's degree in philosophy. At the time, I was tired of school and ready to get on with living my life. And now, some 14 years later, I could not imagine why Jack Kilgore would be calling me. He said that he was calling to request a copy of an article that I'd written for the Ashgrove newspaper. Unbeknownst to me, he told me that his wife, Barbara, was from Ashgrove. And she still subscribed to the local paper. The paper had been thrown away before he could cut out the article and thus his request. He simply said that the article had to do with the nature of the Bible and that he thought it was a good article. Of course, I was flattered by his request and mailed him a copy the next day. This is the article he requested. Within my own denomination, as well as numerous others, there is much controversy as to the nature of the Bible. Much of the controversy centers around the issue of the inspiration of Scripture. What is meant by the statement in 2 Timothy that all Scripture is inspired by God? I'll give you my understanding and respect your right to differ. I believe that the Bible is inspired by God, literally God-breathed, but I don't believe it simply came down from heaven verbally or otherwise. The Bible was written down and translated and pieced together over a period of some 1,500 years. The writers, I think, were moved by the power and spirit of God as he revealed himself to them in the midst of the struggles of their flesh and blood history. 
But this did not cease to make them men. The writers were culturally and historically bound, just as we all are. Therefore, I think we hear the word of men within the Bible as well as the word of God. Maybe this illustration will clarify my meaning. I have several records to which I listen of great masters, Pavarotti, for example. And yet when I listen to the record, it's not just the voice of the master I hear. There are also other noises, pops and scratches due to the fact that the record was made and handled by human beings. It doesn't mean I don't hear the master's voice. Only that I must be careful to distinguish between the sounds that are the master's voice and the surface noises of the record. So with the Bible. We are always faced with the responsibility of distinguishing between the sounds that are the master's voice and those that are a result of the human situation in which men wrote down the words we now have. Does that make the Bible any less the word of God? I don't think so. The Bible is a faith book. It's not a textbook on science or history. It's not a blueprint for societal norms, the roles of men and women, for instance, in every age. That is not its purpose. It never makes that claim for itself. What it does claim is that it will make us wise for salvation, not science, through faith in Christ Jesus. It is inspired by God so as to be useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, not cultural norms, so that the people of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That is its purpose. In that sense, it is the very word of God to our lives, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Of course, a closed Bible never sheds much light on anybody's path. You have to open it and read it and study it and meditate upon it and pray over it and discuss it with others and hide it in your heart and interpret it and proclaim it and live with it and walk by it. May God grant us a brave and fruitful journey as we, with the aid of the Spirit, seek to rightly divide the word of truth. That was my article. Now the same week that Jack called me, another article appeared in the Ashgrove newspaper written in response to mine by another Baptist minister there in town. This in part is what he said. How long will God bless a nation that has men standing behind pulpits denying the absolute perfect word of God? How long will God allow those who put on the mantle self-proclaimed of a shepherd when in fact they lead the sheep over the cliff of theological liberalism and heresy? America needs revival. From this minister's point of view, America needs to be purged of people who hold my understanding of scripture. He brands anyone who does not hold his understanding of scripture a heretic, a self-proclaimed shepherd, a false teacher operating outside the province of God. It's a pretty grave charge. Of course, the scriptures themselves contain numerous warnings concerning false prophets and teachers. 
Jesus said, you shall know them by their fruits, by the kind of lives they live. John says that he who does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. All of these descriptions of a false prophet describe a person who denies the full humanity of the incarnation and does not flesh out that incarnation of love in his own life. These depictions of false prophets say nothing about one's understanding of scripture. There is one place, however, that gets at that issue. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, following the statement that all scripture is inspired by God, we read this. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own liking and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander into myths. And to this day, many are the ears that itch to hear the myths about the Bible that masquerade as the truth. All the rhetoric about God dictating a perfect Bible and infallible original manuscripts, it's just that, just a bunch of rhetoric. Where biblical scholarship has clearly demonstrated that the Bible emerged and grew and developed as the people of God themselves grew and developed throughout their long history. The New Testament grew as the church grew in its self-understanding and its understanding of the ways of God. The Bible was not dropped out of heaven total and complete as though God opened up a window and dropped it down. The Mormons claim that for their holy book, the Book of Mormon, that it just suddenly appeared, as it were, total and complete. And to be a Mormon, you must accept that. People of the Islamic faith claim the same for their holy book, the Koran, that it is total and perfect and inerrant in every way as if it were dropped out of heaven by God through Muhammad. But the Bible never claims that for itself. Indeed, the Bible always looks beyond itself to the action of God in history culminating in the Christ. Salvation comes to us by our experience of God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, not by believing contrived mythical statements about how the Bible is inerrant or inspired. To be sure, the Bible is our sufficient, sufficient rule of both faith and practice. But ultimately, we Christians don't worship the Bible. We worship the living God to whom it points. And so in the course of a week for one particular stance, I received refreshing words of affirmation and scathing words of denunciation. That's life. As you well know, that's what happens anytime you take a public stance on a given issue. It has long been that way for God's people. That is our story. You can read it in the Bible, that odd collection of stories about who we have been and who we are and who under God we must continue to be. Those old stories still offer direction and still inspire us to keep faith and still point us to the truth who is the Christ. One of those old stories Charlene read for us this morning, a story about the Apostle Paul, locked in a Roman prison for his public stance, 
Paul didn't receive a newspaper article denouncing his ministry, but he did receive word that the church in Asia Minor, including two close friends, two fellow Christians named Phygelus and Hermogenes, had turned away from him. They had abandoned him and denounced him, casting aspersions upon his apostleship. And sitting there in his chains, dejected by this renunciation of his life's work, Paul didn't receive a telephone call affirming his ministry, but thank God he did receive numerous visits from an old friend from Ephesus by the name of Onesiphorus, who Paul says refreshed him often and encouraged him to hold fast to the truth. Who are the people who have been God's good gifts to you? Who are the people who have encouraged you when others have denounced you? Who are the people who have refreshed you when you were on the brink of despair? For Paul, it was Onesiphorus. And growing out of that experience, knowing that his days on earth are numbered, Paul takes pen in hand and writes his last will and testament. From his prison cell, he writes a letter to Timothy, the young pastor that Paul has chosen to carry on his work. And boldly does he begin the letter, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Despite what Phygelus or Hermogenes or anyone else might say about him, Paul knows in his heart the integrity of his calling. You can just picture him pressing down hard as he wrote out the words in bold letters, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, whom I serve with a clear conscience, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am sure that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. And knowing that people would question Timothy's genuineness just as they have questioned his, Paul writes to his young protege, encouraging him not to crumble under the pressures and accusations. Timothy, my beloved child, I am reminded of your sincere faith. Rekindle the gift of God that is within you, for God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power and love and self-control. Do not be ashamed then of testifying to our Lord. Take your share of suffering for the gospel in the power of God, who saved us and called us with a holy calling. Guard the truth that has been entrusted to you by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the truth, says Paul, for there are always those who would seek to unnerve us with their untruths and half-truths and appearances of truth. Guard the truth, says Paul, for there are always those who are quick to cry, false apostle, self-proclaimed shepherd, heretic, whenever their own cherished assumptions are challenged. Guard the truth, says Paul. Don't let those who decry you set the agenda for your life and thereby poison it. I've always figured that Paul would be proud of those missionaries who were approached by a minister of a different doctrinal stripe. The minister said to them, gentlemen, I have here a glass of poison. 
If you'll drink this poison and remain alive, then I and my entire congregation will join your church. But if you won't drink the poison, well, I'll have to conclude that you're false ministers of the gospel because surely your Lord won't let you perish. As this put the missionaries in something of a bind, they went off in a corner and put their heads together and tried to figure out what in the world they were going to do. Finally, they decided. They went back over to the minister and said, tell you what, we've got a plan. You drink the poison and we'll raise you from the dead. <laughs> he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And let him be refreshed by the Pauls and Jacks and Oniferses of this world. Who in league with the Christ call us to the truth and encourage us on our way. Amen.